This is the 12 Songs of Christmas. I'm Alex Rawls, and this is my podcast about Christmas music. As you may have noticed, we've had a few weeks between episodes. I'm based in New Orleans, and my family and I evacuated before Hurricane Ida. When it became clear that my daughter's school would take a few weeks to get open again, we decided to visit family instead of sweat out the dreary end of summer in a city with unpredictable gas and grocery supplies and uncollected garbage. Unfortunately, that also meant a few weeks away from this podcast. Now we're back and things are closer to normal, at least for us. We were fortunate and only had minor issues to deal with. And since a cold front rolled in today, it won't wipe me out to work on them this weekend. Today, I get to start returning to normal life, which means getting back to you, this podcast, and Christmas music. This is the time of year when Christmas music starts getting released. And on Thursday... Kelly Clarkson will release a new Christmas song, Christmas Isn't Cancelled, Just You, combining a breakup song and the holidays. We'll have that next week. We were scheduled to get a Backstreet Boys Christmas album this year, and they went through the process of recording it. But when they decided they weren't comfortable touring this fall, they shelved the album as well. It's probably an accurate reading of the reality of album sales, that they actually take place at merch tables or when associated with shows, and that without a tour, a Backstreet Christmas would do okay, but nowhere near the business it might if they were actually out there promoting it. Other Christmas releases include a new Christmas album from Journey's Steve Perry on November 5th, and country singer Brett Eldridge will release Mr. Christmas, his second Christmas album in five years, on October 22nd. In a press release, Eldridge said, quote, Mr. Christmas is something I've been planning out for quite a while. The album is so much fun and full of joy and magic. From the album cover, you can find the magic of Mr. Christmas standing in the window front, looking out just like the old stores on the Rockefeller Center, on the Rockefeller Plaza in New York City, and people passing by in the window. We captured that nostalgic, classic feel that Christmas brings and mixed it with the soulful side of my music influences. It's got a lot of heart and magic. It's a special one for people to hear. It also doesn't sound that different from Glow, his 2016 Christmas album that he re-released in 2018 in an expanded form. It too borrows from the tradition of the well-dressed, swinging crooner, fronting big bands, but he commits to his place in the band on the title track, which is already out, So it brings the requisite good cheer and energy. Let's check out Mr. Christmas, then we'll be back on the other side with this week's conversation, where I break down Santa Baby with the help of some good musical friends. You miss a sparkle, but you could glow. You just need a kiss underneath the mistletoe. I show you magic like you never seen. You are the angel on the top of that evergreen. We'll take a stroll down Michigan Avenue. I'll turn your heart green and red instead of blue. Call me Mr. Christmas. I'll make your spirit bright. I'll dry your eyes with candy skies and warm cherry delight. Santa Baby has a complicated history. I find Eartha Kitt's version irresistible, in part 
because I hadn't heard anything like it when I first heard it. Since then, I've heard Pearl Bailey's 10-pound box of money, which is similarly upfront in its acquisitive nature, but Bailey doesn't link her Christmas wish to any relationship games. By the end, she's shouting at Santa to give her the money. It felt like a lot was going on in Eartha Kitt's version, with a discussion on power, race, gender, and money all tied up in it. Subsequent cover versions have often struggled to find their footing, in part because of their relationship to Kitt's version and the issues it raises. Today on the show, I'm chewing on versions of Santa Baby with three guests that I knew would have interesting takes. Journalist Allison Fensterstock, singer and songwriter Dana Kurtz, and singer and songwriter Alexandra Scott. Alexandra last appeared on the show last year to break down Dolly Parton's Hard Candy Christmas with me. I'll put links to that episode and their relevant pages in the show notes. We'll start the conversation with the version that began it all, Santa Baby by Eartha Kitt from 1953. We all talked via Zoom, and it turns out that I might have been a little ambitious trying to get everybody together on the platform. If it turns out that way and the sound gets a little ragged, thanks in advance for your patience. I think you'll find the conversation worth it. Santa baby, just slip a sable under the tree for me. Been an awful good girl, Santa baby, so hurry down the chimney tonight. Santa baby has has gone from a song that was at one point controversial to almost a cliche. And so I kind of want to track that, uh, that, prog- that movement. And so I want to start with the song itself. And it began, Eartha Kitt had her first hit in 1953, a uh, song Say Si And she wanted a song to follow up on that and sort of to cap the year. So she uh, wanted to commission a song to, that would make sense as a follow-up. And Allison, you actually sent me homework from yesterday, so you've actually looked <laughs> into this. So you want to tell me what you found out about the writing of the song? Yeah. Oh, actually, I was enamored of the uh, ending of that newspaper story. But yeah, I was, I was poking around last night um, just about the song to see what I could find that was interesting. Um, and I discovered an article from the Palm Beach Post from last year that was one of those uh, charming, like, look at this interesting person in our community, like little featurettes. And the the co-writer of the song, this woman, Joan Javits, um, is like 95 years old and still lives in Palm Beach and in Florida. And they sent uh, a reporter over to talk to her and they spent like half the story writing about her adopted Chihuahua mix, whose name is Foxy Lady, um, which I thought was <clears throat> delightful. Um, Cause it was like literally half a story about her pet dog and the only half, like the beginning, like, so this woman wrote like one of the biggest enduring popular songs of the entire 20th and 21st century, but she also has a dog. Um, which is exactly how I would write it, but now I'm kind of, <clears throat> I'm, I'm wandering also, off. I'm certain she has a lot of caftans if she lives in Palm Beach and is 95. Like I can see them. Oh. Well, <laughs> I'm sorry. The original writer was this guy, uh, Philip Springer. Um, she actually, I think, had no writing credits yet at that point. Um, 
Sorry, Alex, I'm sure. falling down on the job sure. of uh, telling the backstory. But didn't he he pursued her as she was she was a young songwriter who was sort of looking for opportunities and he wanted a woman. Right. Right. To write this song from a woman's point of view. And she just like stepped right up to it. Um, and it was before in 1953. It was really before like everyone working in the song factory the prime voices were women, right? It was like a little before Carol King and Ellie Greenwich and uh, Cynthia Weil, you know, over there in the Brill building. Um, so it must have been an even harder business for her to crack. Well, and the fact was at the time that she didn't get credit for it, that they mm -hmm. they recorded, under they wrote it under the name Tony Springer. So I guess it wasn't solely, he wasn't solely taking credit for it, but she, but... She wasn't getting credit for it either. So um, the interesting part of it was that, I mean, I, I found an interview with, uh, with uh, Phil, Sp Phil Springer, who was saying that she came up with the title. And uh, before they had anything else, and then because it was the, the four notes, you know, two two-syllable two, two, two words, he started just writing a melody and writing out some chords based on the Santa Baby, uh, the musicality of that phrase. And then she had to write to that, essentially. Um, mm -hmm. And she talks about, I mean, they both agree. They, I, I've, I've seen you know, the interviews that you've read and that you showed me, and then I found the interview with, Spring, with Springer. They both say that they knocked it out. They just rushed, that there was, not, there was no nothing slow or deliberate about it and that neither of them thought they'd done anything particularly noteworthy. They just figured they just dashed this out and they got a song and move on to the next job. That's really interesting that they wrote to the rhythm of those four bump, 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 bump. Like what do you, Alexandra and Dana, like what do you think of that as singers approaching a song with that kind of melody? It's, I think it happens that way a lot. Um, like, I mean, there's the famous scrambled eggs thing, but so often I can think of at least five examples on my own records where it started as like a song to the dog or a song about picking grapefruits and getting drunk with your friends. And you're just like, da, 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 ba, ba. and then you're like, oh, that could be something. And then you just real quickly write some nonsense and then it's a, it's a song, like the fast ones, are often the enduring ones, irritatingly. <laughs> what do you think, Dana? It's true. I I don't tend to I don't tend to write nonsense lyrics for melodies. Like I'm a la 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 kind of person. I don't like I, I don't like hold the place with with words. Um, I I do know what happens. I did write a Christmas song, but it was pretty deliberate itself, just because it was for like a a Coles jingle campaign kind of thing. Um, and they were just taking jingle demos for original Christmas songs. Um, they just wanted the word uh, list, like they wanted the concept of Christmas list. And so, you know, to me, like writing for stuff like that, it's like, you know, that grill building kind of like, oh yeah, you know, they, we need a Christmas song for this, you know, Aretha Franklin record, you know, do this. Um, is really different than writing for myself. And I've never, I've never actually done the scrambled eggs thing. Where did, did that song ever come out? Did you ever do anything with it? 
No, I recorded it because they they paid for the demo. So if my band was in the studio making a record anyway, and it, uh, I, I think it's great actually. I think it was much better than the one that got the campaign. Uh-huh. But it, it goes, I've shopped quite a bit, and we're a good fit. Where you're at the top of my list this Christmas. Hi ho way, come jump on my slayer at the top of my list this Christmas. And then the, then I go wee and the band goes hi ho wee. It kind of you know little little forties kind of nod. I thought it was awesome. That sounds but, great. You know, I want that. <laughs> someday, someday I'll add a couple of voices and put it up. Please do. The um, so, by the way, so the lyrics, the, the lyrical idea didn't come entirely from Javits. That it was actually was part of the sort of part of the brief in this case, uh, because in Ceci Bon, even though that uh, even though the song is sung in French, there's a point where she sings uh, "Je cherche un millionaire," I'm looking for a millionaire, and she lists some of the things that are bon, including a, a Cadillac, a mink coat, a yacht and loot, which is awesome. Um, a, a word that really does need to come back into the language. Loot is a really excellent uh, descriptor. It's just you, you see a bag of money when you hear loot. Um, so anyway, so she was actually, you know, that it, was, it was all sort of rather deliberate. It was Eartha Kitt framing a very clear persona as, a, as, a, as an artist, and, a, and, uh, and then... Javits being able to step in and pick up on that point of view. And, uh, and, and I, I really found that interesting. because you, I'm always unclear when I think about musicians in this era, how clearly they were conscious of their image, how clearly they were conscious of the persona they were building. Because, because we have such a, an active conversation today about, about artists artists as artists and, you know, artists having, you know, having an image. Allison, I know you've put a lot of time in working and thinking on, you know, musicians from this era. Is that, is that unusual? I mean, I would say like, they were absolutely crafting images behind the scenes. Like this, this was like the, the time of the morals clause, you know, and the very carefully, controlled public persona. I mean, one of the things that's so interesting, I think, about the pre-internet or even like pre, you know, pre-60s and 70s, like, you know, underground press, international phone call era of of people being public and observed. Like in the 40s and 50s, you could just build something behind the scenes and put it out there in Life magazine or on the radio and like have a lot of control over how an artist was perceived and built and crafted. Like there was no Twitter, you know, or Cream Magazine or something to jump in with like revealing the cracks in the fabric or like affairs or anything like that. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think like, cutting songs like that, the way she was photographed, the way she was presented, like this very exotic pet, you know, persona. Um, yeah, it was an entirely um, you know, built in the, uh, in the celebrity factory. 
I mean, if you read anything by Jacqueline Suzanne, you know, you sure. know exactly how it works. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So initially, when it was released, there that uh, that it was considered certainly in the South too risque, and and it was and it was considered and people were saying too risque, and I've all and I've seen that a number of times, but I've never found anywhere where people explained it what was risque, and so. I was kind of like thinking what, you know, thinking back, what would have been considered risque about it? Was it just simply a woman acknowledging desire? Was it a black woman talking about money and power? Um, what would have been, or, you know, what would have been too risque about this? All of those things bother people right now. So yeah. I can't <laughs> ever. Sure. And the, the performance loses. I want, I want this, and I unabashedly own that want. I mean, think about the way people reacted to Cardi B's WAP. They're, those are sister songs, um, so or sister performances. I think even like, even kind of blatantly being a like objective, like being a sexual object for a black woman. In, in the public like that was like it, it, for a white audience was kind of verboten, wasn't it? Yeah. I, well, go ahead. I mean, there was, you know, like, you know, there was the Supremes and stuff. There were like black women you were allowed to find secretly sexy, but a black woman who was, you know, who was like, you know, like openly seductive. Right. Was, it's, it's an well, adult song. I mean, when you talk about the Supremes, I feel like, their image was managed very carefully to be, you know, clean teens, like, and Eartha Kitt is very much this, like, adult, independent character. She is the agent of her own desire, always, which is one of the reasons that she is a queen, if not the queen. I, I got, I got to, I got to fess up though. It's like one of my least favorite Christmas carols. I like never, I never liked it. Like I never, <laughs> and it's always seems to be done by like, you know, Madonna and Gwen Stefani and it, it's got, you know, and Kylie Minogue, it's kind of got this like, you know, the, I don't know, like that, that kind of coy, that, that kind of coy money grubbing feminism has never been like my <laughs> using sex to get, to get like material goods. It's never been an option that I felt like I had. I mean, it's not like I, I couldn't access that kind of like, you know, feminine uh, wiles kind of, you know. And, and so when, you know, I, I, I kind of like I was thinking about it, I was like, yeah, Eartha Kitt had probably the strongest version I've ever heard of that song. Like had probably just be, just because she was a black woman saying, you know, Hey, you know, I, I want the cars. I want the Cadillac. Right. You know, oh. Oh, tell you what, I oh. actually would love to hear you cover it, Dana, though. You would roar through that song. <laughs> <laughs> like there are so many examples of this, like sort of sexy gold digger character that kept turning up in pop culture. Like, I don't know the exact, you know, if the movies are before or after the song, but I was thinking of like the Breakfast at Tiffany's and How to Marry a Millionaire. And I mean, this had also been around since like thinking of like Anita Luz, you know, and Dorothy Parker writing about these like 
these women in the in the 20s. Um, and it was sort of this enduring American character, which is so funny to think of right now, this kind of um, woman who depends upon the kindness of gentlemen, like tucked sure. away in some high rise somewhere, ticking off her Christmas list. I feel like that's what Eartha Kitt was inhabiting. I don't know what happened to that that character. I think, Anna, I, I think did Anna Nicole Smith made that made that yeah. so pop made that so sort of uh, public and uh I, I don't think that could stand up to our contemporary culture that now we know so much as hard for that not to seem tawdry um mm-hmm. and uh it's certainly i'd have a hard time imagining it i mean i'm sure they exist now it's just a matter of those the people the women who are the women who are like that are know enough to not live in a completely public eye or maybe not. If I, you know. No, and they don't wind up making movies centered around their like hilarious antics right. with Marilyn Monroe either. Yeah. It's- no, no, they wind up like, you know, branding themselves on Instagram. Right. Yeah. Becoming influencers. Yeah, that's actually what I was already, it was like, as it was coming out of my, out of my mouth, I'm thinking, wait a minute, that to some extent that sounds very Kardashian. Um, right. I mean, it sounds like, like you know, mo- most of I, I'm guessing most of the women who are married to, uh, you know, star athletes. Yeah. You know, it's just a. I think it's so ubiquitous that you know, but it just used to be really our you know our our only best option would be to luck out to be born pretty, pretty enough to wrap a man around your finger and right. and become wealthy that way if you weren't born into wealth yourself. Yeah. And it is like interesting too. I mean, when you talk about Instagram influencers, like you, that, that person, I guess, wouldn't have to, you know, be like, like Audrey Hepburn, you know, asking for change for the powder room. Like you could just get 25 million followers on Instagram and get paid to, you know, hold up a, I don't know, bottle of body wash or something. And <laughs> like, I mean, it, it the, yeah. the Instagram influencer age, like does make, uh, you know, the person that trades on being cute, more independent. You know, anyway, you, that's yeah. a tangent. But no, but it's <laughs> so interesting. We don't need Santa anymore. <laughs> that's, that's right. right. <laughs> Be your own Santa. <laughs> we are not reliant upon the largesse of Santa Claus. That's right. We've <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, uh. come a long way, baby. You know, I was thinking when 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 you mentioned, you know, this this is a stock. This was a stock comic character, you know. That uh, I, I'm sure one of the I, I'm probably sure running through. It's a mad, 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 mad world, and the attempt to go and find the money was some rich guy and his, you know, and his, uh, you know, and his his uh, sex kitten uh, girlfriend. And in so many comedies, that was this was a stock uh, a stock sort of combination, and but they but the funny thing is like Eartha Kitt in this you know isn't a comic figure, or 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 the joke's not on her, that whereas the other ones like she's that the you know that the it's always how it's always always a dumb blonde, and that it was always she was sort of silly and and daffy, and there's no sense of that in this that. Eartha Kitt is a silly or daffy figure. You know, right. she sings that song like a dominatrix. 
yeah. mean, she is absolutely <laughs> telling somebody what to do, not like wheedling them. <laughs> She's a thin dom. Yeah. <laughs> so we mentioned Madonna a minute ago. And so I do want to go, and I, I want to go to it because one of the things I think is, it is also, it, it is actually one of my least favorite versions. And it does a lot of things that I actually dislike. And I think a lot of what, what has happened to the song in the last, uh, it, was, it was 87, so 97, the last 30 years, I think can kind of be pinned on her. But she's also the person who really kind of brought it into modern world. It wasn't, it wasn't particularly covered until uh, Madonna did it. Uh, there are versions between Eartha Kitt and Madonna, but not many. Um, so anyway, she did it in 87. And I think this is also a, a kind of interesting in thinking about the song. She did it in 87, which is kind of in her movie phase. It was after Desperately Seeking Susan, after Shanghai Surprise, uh, Who's That Girl came out in the summer before it came out at Christmas time, and it was before Dick Tracy in 1990. And so it was kind of a phase where Madonna wasn't necessarily doing sort of defining work, but she was, her, but maybe her celebrity had never been bigger. Santa baby, slip a sable under the tree for me. Been an awful good girl, Santa baby, and hurry down the chimney tonight. A baby, an outer space convertible to light blue. I'll wait up for you, dear Santa baby, and hurry down the chimney tonight. Yeah, she does the annoying voice. You know, it's like the the unsophisticated baby voice that also sounds like you know the the secretary from the outer boroughs or something like or you know like Miss Adelaide, Adelaide and guys and guys dolls. And dolls. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, Dana. Do you want you you want to you want to lay out on that one? You want to go? You want to let, <laughs> make, make your feelings known? I, you know, I, it, you know, to. It's hard not to extrapolate a kind of you know like you know for lack of a better word a white capitalist feminism out of all that stuff that I that I just find like not helpful like I, you know what I mean <laughs> yeah like, you know it's just a song and all but it just kind of like you know it, it's you know the the enduring trope of the you know or it's a real thing they're they're real people um but you know the the enduring need for a woman like like I'm trying hard to imagine a woman who does not trade a singer who does not trade at all on a patriarchal notion of her womanhood doing that song like can you imagine Nina Simone or Patti Smith or you know a 50 year old Marianne Faithful covering this song at all right you know yeah <laughs> and I can't like I can't like could they even do like an ironic version in, in some way or a you know or a, a, a you know could like could like Nina Simone like imbue that with agency because she imbues ever like she could imbue the phone book with agency you know um like and I'm not sure anybody could like there, you know, the, the, the song, the, the song 
is is what it is. You know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Although I have to say, now that you've got me thinking, I I would love to know what I'd love to hear what Marianne Faithful would do with that. Um, I also <laughs> go ahead, I Alexandra. Said, I don't know if you've already asked this question, um, but I'd be interested to hear. I've wondered what Patty Smith would sound like singing this for a long time, just because <laughs> it would be so weird. Like, just a straight up rendition. That would be in the bar shows. I would I would just want to see just because. That would like, be- is there a like is there a male equivalent of a Santa baby? Like what is like a kind of maybe in like, your culture, but I don't think so. Yeah, I I, I can't think of a Christmas. I mean, I can't think of a song. Period. Certainly not a Christmas song where they are basically saying, "I'm looking to you." You know, what can I get from you? Um, and yeah. and particular and, and particularly like Madonna in this case. You know, the interesting thing, I guess, as I think about that Madonna version is, and it is the transition between the, you know, sort of versions of that we've been talking about. It's Eartha Kitt versus kind of the cartoonish gold digger girlfriend or arm candy is that Madonna plays it. I mean, Madonna Madonna plays it as the comic character, plays it as sort of as the arm candy character and uh, down to the... Down to the girl, uh, the girlish, uh, don't take me seriously voice. I think it's so funny she puts that like accent on it, you know, like like again, like she's like the phone operator in the basement of Bloomingdale's in 1953 or something. Like, hold please. Um, But yeah, it's funny too because like I think that like the song like her song that's sort of the real commentary on this whole idea is material girl which must have come out like right about the same time or right before mm, about she three, or f- about three years cover. earlier right i mean and that's like that's a great like weird investigation of like you know transactional prettiness and femininity and the video she uses diamonds are a girl's best friend as the whole aesthetic you know inspiration for the video um and whereas obviously like i think in that movie and in how to marry a millionaire and in like a bunch of movies marilyn monroe was playing that character like the dumb blonde who was sort of out to get funded um i understood and i'd love to know if this if this idea came from her or if someone else said hey this is the natural christmas follow-up to material girl this is on brand for you um, this would, this was on the, uh, very first, uh, very special Christmas compilation. So yes. it was, you know, so the, so the album itself was kind of a star, you know, a star vehicle. And so it's quite possible that the idea, someone else came to her and said, this is a thing. What struck me was, was once I thought about this being a phase where she was, you know, kind of in a run of four movies was that this is very much a, very much a, a theatrical performance. It is like down to doing, not just doing the high pitched voice, but doing an accent. Uh, It feels very much like she's acting in this rather than sort of singing it and investing anything in it, which, which is why I actually, which is why I lose interest in it pretty quick is besides the just 
I do have an issue with high-pitched, self-infantilizing uh, female voices. I also have the fact that she just doesn't seem invested in it makes it feel like it's just it's three and a half minutes of activity with nothing to no particular purpose. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's like the most annoying, possibly one of the possibly the most annoying version of that song. Yeah. So so here's a version that sidesteps the baby talk. Uh, this is Taylor Swift's version, and uh, it comes from uh, the Taylor Swift Holiday Collection. Uh, which was an EP in 2007 that she recorded when she was 18, and it was her first release after her first album. Santa baby, slip a sable under the tree for me. I've been an awful good girl, Santa baby, so hurry down the chimney tonight. What's interesting to me is that, like, the, 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 the you know, the women, like, you know, the, the women who cover this are the women who are asked to do, like, you know, pop Christmas songs because whatever, this one hasn't been done in three whole years, which is a lifetime in the music industry, and you're a big pop star right now, so why don't you do this one? Um, but they're all quite powerful in their own right. Like, you know, she doesn't need to ask Santa for, a, you know, for a car. She she can she can buy all of her boys' cars like Elvis, you know. Right. Um, not that yeah. you know. Yeah. I'm reading a yeah. lot into it here, but yeah. it's just sort of like, you know, like. Well, to, to, I mean, I'm 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 going with you because I'm a long way with you on this one, but I also that at this point her career wasn't nearly as assured. I mean, this was say she was 18; she'd had one album. And I, I mean a couple of a couple of uh, of hits off of it, but she was by no means you know uh, someone who was you know she wasn't, she wasn't running an empire. She wasn't an empire yet, no. So she still could have conceivably needed Santa in a few years' time and the, to buy her uh, a Cadillac and a ring. Yes, there you know okay. she think so. I mean, except for the fact that her daddy was wealthy, which is how she yes. got all this shit to begin. With. Sure. So. Her daddy could have, but she's probably used to talk to talking to her daddy in that tone of voice already. <laughs> so, so really, she's got the language. She understands, you know, she understands the um, the culture of of asking wealthy men for what they need. Right. Right. Okay. All right. That's okay. also like that's such a charming recording. Like, there's nothing wrong with anything about it except like the words almost stop making sense in that context like you just you have this like just like nice acoustic guitar and this sweet fresh young voice and this kind of cheery unadorned tone and like it just the words just don't fit and it's like so I mean the song is so familiar that it just kind of it's not jarring it just kind of goes along but yeah, it just, it totally it requires it makes like zero artist. sense. Yeah. Like, I mean, maybe the only good version is the Eartha Kit version, and that's it. Like, yeah. Yeah, it was, I was thinking a lot of the same things you were in this one. I was like, what happens to this song if someone sings it dead earnestly? Um, <laughs> and, and all I could kind of get out of it 
was kind of was a, is sort of this entirely meta activity where it is Taylor Swift's way of kind of like I'm singing a song about Christmas that set, mentions Christmas during Christmas time. And so it's a Christmas. So I'm singing a Christmas song and the words almost entirely disappear after like Christmas and Santa. And that it's also a way that because, um, oh, because uh, Madonna and Kylie Minogue had performed it, that it was a way of signaling, I'm in the same universe as these people. But as the actual nuts and bolts of how do the words and the performance make any sense together, it's like, that, that's, it's crazy. Uh, I, I, I can't... Uh, the only thing I believed in it was that she really wants Santa to hurry down the chimney for tonight. The rest of it all seemed completely <laughs> abstract. It's a, it's a song that requires a, like a, a little artifice because it's an artificial, you know, personality that, you know, the gold digger is like a caricature. So if you're not delivering the song like like an actor, sure. It, it you know, can't yeah. you, you can't you can't deliver it I guess with any um, real uh honesty because it's not it's a silly it's a it's a like it's like a, it's like a it's a silly caricature the, you know the gold digging like you have to have a little bit of a whether it's the front of a dominatrix <laughs> right or the cat woman or whatever or the you know or or the front of a um you know silly little you know hair twisty girl you know right i want to go now to gwen stefani's version and I have to say that this came out in 2017 on her album, You Make It Feel Like Christmas. And I have to, I'll say up front, I tend to like Gwen Stefani, especially at her most sort of plastic and artificial, because I think in that, as this truly sort of plastic, almost uh, sort of, you know, 80s, you know, uh, caricature, I think she actually does that, does that really well. Um, and because of that, I probably overrate this song um, because the rest of the record is actually really unfortunate. Uh, it was co-written by Blake Shelton, or much oh. of it was co-written by Blake Shelton. And so the songs have this God-fearing suburban domesticity running through them that makes Gwen Stefani incredibly bland. And it's like she, God is thanked more often on this record than on her entire remainder of her, uh, of her output. And so it's really uh, bizarre. Um, and it brings everything that's least interesting about her. Uh, and so I will let you hear her version of Santa Baby, and then we will uh, chew on that some more. Santa Baby, a 54 convertible to light blue I'll wait up for you, dear Santa Baby, so hurry down the chimney tonight What is that snare sound? That is the weirdest echoey straight. Like, is that a real snare or just 
like with a ton of shit on it or is that a drum machine? I would assume a snare with a ton of shit on it. There's a real self-conscious um, effort to sort of mimic uh, Esquivel in that arrangement. That things like the the vocalist singing zoo zoo at the end. Uh, and there's, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I always forget zoom. I like those zoo zoos. Yeah. I noticed. Yeah, it's, um, you know, Esquivel was one of those people who was sort of fetishized during the lounge revival. A, uh, oh man, I think he was a Mexican composer and uh, band leader. And his stuff, at the point when they were sort of the early days of hi-fi, when records were being made to kind of dispel the idea of stereo, he would make these uh, arrangements that were had a very busy with a lot of vocals, a lot of percussion, and they were all very sort of extremely placed in the soundscape. And so you have, a, the idea was to create a very 3D hi-fi sound and to give people a reason to buy an actual stereo. And that is periodically shows up in this album. And for me, it's one of its saving graces. Um, otherwise, for me, this works for Gwen Stefani because Gwen Stefani is theatrical. There, you know, I, I don't know that I can find a, Gwen, a song that she sings on and feel like there's an actual, there's a real person underneath this song. Um, or that I can directly trace this song to a real person. Alexander, you look like you got something to say. Uh, it's my authoritative pencil. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, I do actually, though, because I my response to this version, and I will say, like, I, I'm a simple song appreciator. Like, I can put aside the patriarchy problems and just enjoy the fact. Like, I, I just I enjoy Santa Baby. Um, I don't enjoy most of the vapid covers of it, but I, I think this one works, and I think it works for exactly the reason that you're saying. Gwen Stefani has sung through a pose and it's a generally an effective pose for her whole career. And that pose fits exactly into what this song is about. Um, I don't think, I don't think anyone will ever have the power that Eartha Kitt has in the song. Like it's one of those songs that really should, should just not have covered, mm -hmm. should not have been covered after Eartha's just like, Nobody should have covered Hallelujah after Jeff Buckley, but we all do. Like, I'm guilty. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like, the, this one works. Yeah. Allison? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I'm just going to, like, be another vote for, like, it, it works because she's doing that exaggerated glamour girl theatricality that's very retro. Um and I think that's the only way it can work. Like, and, and also, I mean, as I said, after the Taylor Swift version, I do think it's possible that the original is the only good version, but that yeah. was fine. That was good job, Gwen. That was cool. Like it, it also, to the extent that I want to invest in Gwen Stefani, I find, and, and I clearly have invested more than I, more than I probably should I, well, that's not fair. Um, the uh, that the idea of her as the underdog is a far more interesting pose than her as the as the uh, queen, as, as the success story. Um, 
I remember her when No Doubt played Jazz Fest, that half the show she was busy being a very successful sort of uh, role model. And the, the time the audience genuinely connected was when she was most like one of them. Uh, that she could not help but walk around the stage being sort of semi-regal and being, and you could not look at her and not see the money. And it was like, at that point, the audience wasn't really connecting, except on the, I used to love these songs level. And, uh, and then they actually seemed to invest when she was closer to one of them. Um, and so the idea that this at least sort of moves her to the, the striver rather than the successful side of the equation makes her more likable. Going back to what Allison said about Earth as being the only good version, which I think is probably true. And I mean, there's some weirdness in all of us being a bunch of white people discussing this, but there's some, there is inherently something less more distasteful about rich white women saying that they want a bunch of stuff than there is about a black woman in what was the year that Eartha Kitt reported 1953. In 1953, powerfully stating the things that she wants one by one, like that it's just a different act. It's and they're never going to be the same. One is an, ooh, you can look at me. And that can be cute, kind of. But the other is just an act of power. Like, it's like an incantation. Yeah. No, you're right. That uh, if Eartha Kitt got any of that, it is, it is incredibly transformational in her, in her life. It represents something entirely different. Her version always reminds me of Peel Me a Grape in the, in the sort of, <laughs> it's just the, I'm going to hold up my hand and you're going to dance for me, lover. And you're going to really, really like it. Like Eartha is just always in command. And in the same way that, well, I'm actually not going to go there, but yeah. Actually, that's, that's an interesting way of uh, putting a point on some of the stuff though. Like in who is sort of the question is in, in all these versions, who's in charge? And, you know, and Allison earlier, you, I think you mentioned dominatrix, but I think there's an el- that that's a strong element of this. Like who is, she's telling someone what they're going to have to do for her. And, you know, and it's, there's no question. She's, she's not pleading, you know, the, in the other ones, and she's not giving up her power. She's exercising her power. And the others are all sort of in a position of, hey, would you please do something, for, you know, would you do something for me? in the position of someone who's hoping they'll do it. Well, yeah, I know. I, I, like, I, like the sex, I like the sex worker analogy because it is such a, it's, it is such a, like a bald exchange. Yeah. <laughs> that like, yeah, that's the, that Eartha is a fin dom and, uh, you know, and everybody else is a sugar baby, you know? Yeah. 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 And it's, it's adult in a way that like, to me, like only things from the 50s and 60s can be adult, you know, right. like when you think of I think of like Matthew Weiner, who created Mad Men, talking about how he was like basically making a show about the mysteries of like parents because his parents were the age of Don Draper and 
Does that make sense? Like, yeah. it's just this this mysterious grown-upness, you know, of, like, suits and ties and high heels and hairdos and cocktails that, like, you know, I must be much older than Eartha Kitt was when she made that song. But, like, she feels, like, just impossibly, you know, adult. Well, yes, yeah. that's true. Well, and also, and I think what's interesting about that is particularly in the Christmas music context, because so much Christmas music is made first for kids or at least to be kid friendly and to have to have a Christmas song that right off the bat takes kids out of the equation. This is not for you. I'm not thinking about you. Uh, that is that has its own kind of vitality. This is the only one. Maybe Baby It's Cold Outside. I'm trying to think about, which isn't really a Christmas song, but we treat it like one. Yeah. Uh, the one we did last time I was on the cast, Alex. Um, oh, uh, Hard Candy uh, Christmas. Yeah. That, but like, Santa Baby's definitely made for the adults who are sneaking off with somebody else's spouse at the Christmas party, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. One of my favorites. And then there's that whole genre of like, like, even like funny grown up. Christmas songs like Backdoor Santa, which is sure. like one of my absolute favorites. Yeah. The, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm fascinated by these. And there's a few I really like. My favorite is uh, Nancy Wilson's version of uh, the Christmas Waltz. Um, waltz being a dance no child could be interested in, um, unless they're doing it with mom or dad. But anyway, but it's like, you, you know, you hear her version and it's this elegant party that you want to be at. And um, it's it's far it's far more interesting, I think, far more successful than Sinatra's version, which feels very stiff and 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 joyless. Uh, sounds like, sounds like a waltz in another a waltz in the rest of the world rather than a waltz in South Louisiana, where it's where there, where where it feels very like something everyone does. So yeah. So we're gonna finish with a version that I think would be pretty easy to tee off on. I very rarely give in to the let's beat on a bad song, but this version's kind of astounding and <laughs> such a and such an odd decision that I can't not do it. Uh, this is this is Michael Bublé's version of Santa Baby. Santa Baby Slip a Rolex under the tree for me I've been an awful good guy Santa buddy And hurry down the chimney tonight Santa buddy a 65 convertible to steel blue I'll wait up for you, dude, Santa buddy And hurry down the chimney tonight has any, has any man gone gay for Santa in a song yet? Has anybody, has any man covered that saying baby? Yes. That would be so great. Yes, actually. Who does it? Nathaniel Ratliff. Uh, Nathaniel Ratliff. Nathaniel Ratliff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'll actually find that because I was. 
I would just like to say, as the person who has to sign off, that I made my burlesque debut with a version of this called Skanky Baby that Josh Paxton and I wrote. Um, <laughs> I sang it while stripping. Uh, so it didn't go gay for Santa, but I got naked for Santa. <laughs> I find that one of the most bizarre things I've listened to, that uh, the Michael Buble version of Santa Baby. Um, it there's later on there's the you know in the bridge where uh, where she says think of all the think of all the fellas that I haven't kissed he sings think of all the hotties that I haven't kissed it, which oh. <laughs> and like why would your buddy Santa care that you've been staying chased yeah like if Santa was your your buddy. I don't also, know. Is, I mean, is Michael Bublé actually, actually gay, or do I just is think he gay? He I I think not. Okay, I'm gonna Google the shit now yeah. while while you guys set up your song. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I was, when I first I was like, this is like, I was thinking this is the Christmas song for a uh, an SEC tailgate party. That this is like so guys can sing along and call each other bro and dude and and that's enough without without thinking about the weirdness of the uh of everything else about it and also i gotta say i i i've paid attention very little to michael buble and i also found that to not speak very well for him as a singer i found that really both as a as a voice uninteresting and the phrasing to be really brutally mannered in a, in a show where we've had a lot of mannered vocals. Yeah. Yeah, it just yeah. comes across very strange. And you're not sure if he's like, I mean, I would love if he just was 100% like, this is the gay version. Um, yeah, that would be awesome. Yeah. I'd be all for it. But like, it's just, it just feels slightly gay and kind of confusing as opposed to like wholeheartedly gay. Yeah. I, I, I vote we find, like somebody's got to do a real twank version, like a serious, like, yeah, yeah, it's, it, it should happen. And Michael Buble is not gay, but apparently his wife thought that he was when she met him. <laughs> I just Googled that too. Yeah. And I, so I'm not alone right. <laughs> in assuming that, you know, Barry Manilow, without yeah. the songwriting chops of the 21st century, <laughs> um, is get is 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 gay he he is not but he just he he, he just plays one on tv you know it, it's one of these things i i ran into this when thinking about christmas songs a lot is how often a song is just sort of a is really just kind of a generic expression of christmasness that when someone chooses to do a song they're not really all that all that engaged in the lyric and that they're just like, much like the Taylor Swift version, like if you sing about a song with Santa, if you sing a song with Santa and Christmas and people already know it, you're, it, it becomes sort of enough that that's the, act, the activity of singing is, is entirely meta. Um, and if people already like that, if people like that song, they'll like your version, but not because they're thinking about what the words mean. They're thinking, they're liking it on the level of, it's her or it's him singing this song that I like, and that the, and that the the investment 
in the song actually kind of ends at that point in a lot of cases. Which is which I also think a lot about pop music. How often how often do when when we're dealing with pop music, how often are the lyrics something that the 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 singer is genuinely invested in? Um as a singer? Yeah. Um almost all the time personally, but I also for that reason have a hard time covering songs I don't relate to. Right. Like I, I you know, like you know, when somebody you know, when somebody asked me to cover a song that I don't feel like are saying words that could come out of my mouth or out of my hand, like I can't, I can't pull it off. So hence, I don't actually cover a lot of Christmas songs. Um, but there has to be some, you know, there, there's some level of acting to covering a song in the true sense of acting that you inhabit. You know, you're trying to inhabit what the, you know, you're trying to tell the story that the person who wrote the song is trying to tell as if it's your own. Right. You know, and if the story is not good, it's really hard to, you know, hence my not relating to the song, because that's the way I listen to the songs. Not necessarily that I should experience them as my own, but that I could conceivably, you know, like I could conceive, you know, and I'm like, yeah, I can't inhabit, you know, I can't inhabit a like, you know, a cute little blonde gold digger. I can't. Like, sure. I don't know how to do that. That's not in my wheelhouse. Yeah. So, yeah. Allison? I don't know if I've ever thought like specifically about like contemporary pop singers inhabiting their lyrics or not. I mean, I know you can tell when I feel like you can tell when someone just doesn't care. Um, but that that's definitely happening with this song. Like the lyrics are sort of so specifically meant for a persona like Eartha Kitt's. Um, which Gwen Stefani managed to do a version of pretty convincingly, but like, it just seems really hard for anyone else to do, you know, and, and trying to make another character, like I think Madonna did, did not work, or it was like the wrong character. And like, I don't even know what Michael Bublé was doing. Yeah. <laughs> like, so it did not work. No. Um, this part of the conversation is one of the reasons I do pay attention to Christmas music, because I find it thinking about how does a Michael Bublé version of Santa Baby exist always feels like a window into how pop songs exist. Because at some point, somebody thought this was a good idea. Um, <laughs> yeah, we can all disagree. Whether it is or not is a different story, but someone thought it was. And the fact that it had, it, you know, it, you know, he recorded it meant that enough people, the enough people thought it was a good idea to have it get through the system. And so kind of what is a song like this? And I mean, it, it may just be kind of the, the pop activity at its most cynical, where if somebody says Santa Christmas, Santa Christmas chimney, everything else in between there is sort of Charlie Brown's teacher. But because we heard... Santa Christmas, Santa Christmas, in a musical framework that we know and like, it's good enough. Um, and that, I mean, that's, that's kind of cold, and, but it also, I suspect, that's a big part of how, you know, how, how a lot of pop works. Um, I mean, we've all listened to it, but we, we've all heard cover versions or people like bands at a, like a jazz fest playing a cover song and claiming is some kind of relevance, and you realize they pulled like one line out of it, and that's what made it relevant. And the whole rest of the song isn't relevant at all. 
but right. because there was one relevant line in it that it got over the you know, it got over the hump. And so like we listen we like we hear, oh yeah, this is about you know, this is about this is about Hurricane Katrina. And then once they pass one a line or two, it's not anymore, but that uh, but that part doesn't matter because the one line was. That kind of it's, ability to listen to a song and the ability to listen to a song for people to listen to a song and pick out just the pieces they want, hang on to it and say, you know, this is that because those pieces are there is a kind of an interesting, you know, maybe sad comment on how we listen to music. Or just, I mean, I think it's how most people listen to music, period. Like, you know, most people don't listen to lyrics that closely. It's the music that sends them the over the edge, you know. And so if there's like this thing about, you know, in the year after Katrina and, and you know, and singing why, even though that's, a, you know, when you listen to the lyrics is a, is a love song, but why it made everybody cry so hard <laughs> when right. John Boutte did it is is um is because they were feeling that and then the music just kind of carried them on that feeling for the rest of the ride and you know and, and it was cathartic and it did what music should do you know mm. i'm still thinking about who should cover santa baby and now it definitely should be a twink and the video should be in a really shitty san francisco like studio apartment and the guy's got to come <laughs> back from his, he's like you know, he's Gen Z and he's like working in fucking Starbucks and he comes up from his shitty McJob and he throws and he's just like, you know, Santa baby. Like I want to, uh, you yeah. know, I, yeah, I, yeah. I, I've been so good. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that would be the version that would deliver something new, like a new, like, you know, like that would be like, okay, you know, what might not equal Eartha Kit, but it, it would, it would it'd turn the song on its head in a way that I would, I would find enjoyable. Yeah. yeah. I have to say my, the one I've, I've had in mind is I wanted to hear Courtney Barnett sing it uh, because I want to hear her accent with almost right off the bat. None of the other accents could come in. She's so always completely herself in her voice that I think that would be really interesting. And since, you know, class issues are a part of, you know, are sent are a big part of who she is. I feel like, if she sang it, I, there's something would happen of interest in that version. Well, I was thinking actually, like before we started talking and I, I ran out of time to Google to see if it had happened, but I would love to hear Miss Piggy do it. And it has happened. <laughs> it has. It must. I was thinking it must have happened. Yeah. So I'm going to like go watch that clip maybe when we get off this call. Oh, I remember we were going to actually, let me see here. I found that Nathaniel Rateliff. Um, let me see here. Let's hear that from a second here. Let's see if I remember that right, that correctly. Santa baby, slip a sable under the tree for me. Then an awful good girl. Santa baby, so hurry down the chimney tonight. Oh, that's an odd line scheme. Kissed and List are like, they occur in an odd place in the song. Like it should be like a two, two rhyme, not a one, like a two, four. Sorry. Just, <laughs> I just not expect, I just like, I, sorry, I'm critiquing the entire construction of a classic song, but I am. 
I just don't think I ever noticed it. I don't think I ever like listened that closely to the bridge before. Right. That was really nicely done, though. I liked it. I mean, yeah, I, I was, I, I was pleasantly surprised by how much I like sort of the tender uh, piano in the background. I'm trying to figure out. I mean, I, I, I'm trying to figure out his performance. It, it may be that he's just you know because he's not signaling because he's not doing it. He's not singing it in a kittenish voice because it is less theatrical. It's, it feels a little harder to read. Maybe I'm so used to like the song coming to you with such big, clear signals of where every, where, where the singer's at, that anything more subtle doesn't, is hard to recognize. Yeah. Like he's not doing the character. He's just being a guy singing a classic song. Like he's not, he is not the the eye of that song. Right. He's just like giving you the song, and it. I think it comes across nice. It's just smooth and kind of not overly, you know. It doesn't have all the annoying bits on it, like Madonna's voice, you know, her fake baby voice. It's just very laid back, very like last song in the cocktail lounge. At, two in the morning or something and to not to not change girl you know like to say mm -hmm. that he's been a very good girl i thought was kind of an interesting choice because like you know when you make a choice like that and you change the sex you know you change you know you you do a song that's meant for the opposite sex in a heteronormative situation um like every choice you make it like defines you because he could you know he could say like you know i've been a very good boy just as easily there's no rhyme needed for it um and then but then he like goes on to think of all the fellows i haven't kissed he just he's just doing the song straight ahead as it was he's just like saying you know well maybe i am a girl maybe I, you know like i don't know that was the, you know the, those sort of things are always thought about when you cover a song like sure. if you're gonna you know if you're gonna change any pronouns if all of them if you're gonna you know how how are you going to own this song as a man, you know, or as a gay man, or what whatever? Is he non-binary? I have no idea. He's or married. Non-binary. He's what? married. He's married. Yeah. To a woman. Woman, yes. Okay. Woman who woman who had a, who has been lesbian for an extended point before they got married, but gotcha. so so, um, so he's just kind of enjoying the gender fuck of it, which I I, I rather appreciate. Yeah. And, you know, and the one thing I was thinking about when I was listening to it was that it's it's you can also hear it as an act of fandom, uh, as, an, as a musician liking a song and that simply, you know, here's a song that, you know, here's a Christmas song I really like. And, you know, there's not and that it's pretty, you know, that as he doesn't try to move into the song, it feels very much like sort of an, like an act of, you know, musician being a fan of a song. Mm -hmm. And that's you know it may not go a lot deeper than that. I mean, it's but there's no question. I, I I find the same. I like I like so much about it. I wish I felt more engaged in it. I really enjoyed it. Actually, it was just so laid back. Like there was something very genuine about it, which is really funny because it's such a fakey theatrical song. But I guess the genuine thing was him just kind of liking the song. Yeah. And just do it, doing it straight ahead. Come and trim my curls. 
Thanks to Allison, Dana, and Alexander for the conversation. You can find their writing and music online, and I'll link to them in the show notes. If you have a favorite version of Santa Baby we didn't talk about, or a take we didn't land on, let me know. There's a lot in Santa Baby and all its incarnations to chew on. If you haven't already done so, I'd appreciate it if you would do what you have to to get 12 songs in your regular podcast feed. Subscribe, follow, like, or whatever. If you get your podcast through Apple, a five-star review will help others find out about 12 songs. Thanks to AF the Naysayer for the theme music, and thanks to you for listening. Earlier on, I talked about Pearl Bailey's 10-pound box of money. We didn't get a chance to play it then. Let's take care of that now. We'll go out with Pearl Bailey. Talk to you next week. Listen to me, honey. Give Pearl something that'll be of some use to me, like a, like a five-pound box of money. Now, now, there's a little gift. It's loaded with lots of sentiment. See, whenever I get blue, Santa, I'm going to think of you. But at the same time, I will change to pay my rent, you see? Now, money isn't everything. There's no two ways about it But while we're here, Santa dear Is much better with than without it So...